Hey everyone, Artie here just to introduce today's show. The episode you're about to hear is our conversation from January on New York Mayor Eric Adams' recent push to expand the practice of having people involuntarily committed, all the while expanding policing powers and police discretion over who gets committed and why. This was originally a patron episode, but we wanted to make sure it was available to everyone for a simple reason, which is this didn't simply pop up and then go away, even though most of the coverage of it has. In February, a U.S. district judge ruled that Adams' plan can go forward, and so it has. Um, There are legal challenges to this. Just last week, a group of New York advocacy organizations filed an amended complaint against the new policies, so there is still a legal challenge ongoing. But more than that, as we've just seen this week, for instance, Adams was forced to back off from cutting funding to the New York public library system, for now at least, when faced with enough public outrage. So if the things we describe in this episode piss you off, It's not too late to try to make Adam's answer for how blatantly evil this is. One last thing, and then on to the episode. Um, We've had a decent amount of unlocks in the main feed recently. That usually isn't the norm, but we typically use these unlocks to cover for when B loses a couple of days to treatment, and there have been a lot of those days recently. Um, All of which is to say thank you for bearing with us, and if you've appreciated the unlocked episodes recently, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We are entirely listener supported, so becoming a patron doesn't just get you access to episodes like the one I'm introducing, it also makes the show itself happen, including the free ones. Anyway, that's all from me. Fuck Eric Adams. Hope you enjoy. Patrons, thank you for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library, and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. So today, Artie, Jules, and I are going to talk about coercive treatment, psychiatric care, austerity, and a recent announcement from New York City Mayor Eric Adams, which expands directives for involuntary hospitalizations to include essentially a more generous interpretation of the guidelines for when someone can be picked up off the street by the NYPD and hospitalized against their will. And so essentially, Adams made this announcement and he launched this 11-point legislative agenda that's a real piece of work. Um, Artie and I wrote about this in a piece for The Nation called is Eric Adams bringing back the asylum. And thank you to our editor, Alana Pakros, for working with us on that and for letting us highlight the fact that the darkness of this plan cuts a little bit deeper than a lot of the initial reporting has really actually gotten a chance to get into. And recently, Artie Jules and I can't seem to stop finding ourselves discussing the fact that it feels very much like we're living in the forever 19th century. And if you're a longtime listener of Death Panel or a reader of Health Communism, You'll know that we're going to talk about this within the context of the history of institutionalization. And there are just so many echoes in Adams's rhetoric and in the structure of this Mm -hmm. announcement that just betray how little people know about the history of policing, who is part of the body politic, who is a part of the we, who is entitled to public space, and really who society is for. 
So Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about the history of policies directing police to remove poor people from public space that not just Mayor Adams, but also New York Governor Kathy Hochul seem painfully ignorant of. And we're also going to get into the details of what Adams is actually proposing and the context of some of his claims to talk about this broader pre-existing dynamic of extractive abandonment that his announcement and agenda will just fuel and really drive us towards this kind of era of a new asylum. So yeah, first, let's start with the announcement itself. And we can get into the details of what Adams is proposing, including about really kind of like what his claims are as to the problem um, that this directive is supposed to fix and who this policy is for. So on November 29th, 2022, Mayor Eric Adams delivered an address and held a Q&A, which was billed as about addressing New York City's mental health crisis. And... At this thing, Adams announced a sweeping set of immediate orders, as well as a legislative agenda that aims to essentially dramatically increase involuntary hospitalizations in New York City. And Adams opens up with, I'm going to just use his own words here because kind of can't get better than than what he actually said. Adams (laughs) opens up his speech (laughs) (laughs) with, um, good morning, New York City. I want to talk to you about a crisis we all see around us. People with severe and untreated mental illness who live out in the open, on the streets, in our subways, in danger and in need. We see them every day and our city workers are familiar with their stories. The man standing all day on the street across from the building he was evicted from 25 years ago, waiting to be let in. The shadow boxer on the street corner in Midtown mumbling to himself as he jabs at an invisible adversary. The unresponsive man unable to get off the train at the end of the line without assistance. These New Yorkers and hundreds of others like them are in urgent need of treatment, yet often refuse when offered. The very nature of their illnesses keeps them from realizing they need intervention and support. Lord. So he then sort of talks about how his team has been focused on this for the last 11 months, which just to pause for a little bit of context here, and this is the first sort of moment I want to talk and pause and talk about what he's actually saying here. So Adams is a former police officer and police captain. Mm -hmm. He really has centralized this message around the narrative of New York City being in the middle of a crime panic and has made dealing with crime the kind of central priority of his administration. So he's situating this homelessness crisis and crisis of mental health, not just as being sort of related, but causal to this crime wave that he's sort of orienting his whole administration around trying to fight. And the announcement itself, in a lot of ways, is kind of setting the stage for something that he has used to defend the announcement over and over, which is that the people who he is targeting with this policy are the ones who are allegedly committing all these crimes and and making New Yorkers, you know, quote unquote, unsafe. Right. Which obviously it goes without saying, or rather, I think on this show it goes without saying, but, you know, it should be said. Obviously, this is sort of a classic thing for this type of person, for cops like Eric Adams, but also for right wingers. I mean, the whole thing that you uh, ran through um, the beginning of Adam's speech sounds practically like he's trying to describe the introduction, the introductory sequence to like a Clint Eastwood movie or something like that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, obviously, I think 
I don't know, this is the same city. Um, New York City is the same city where there has been a drumbeat for decades that, for example, the rent is too damn high. And so there may be a reason that so many people are unhoused and sometimes in distress in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we don't guarantee housing, the fact that we don't guarantee health care, the fact that we don't guarantee not just like, quote unquote, mental health care, mm-hmm. but long term care, long term services and supports to people, the fact that, you know, people don't have the social supports that they really need is the actual crisis here. This is a crisis of capitalism. And of course, you know, I think we'll get to it at some point. We'll probably, I think, talk through this idea of uh, what the um, scholar and um, someone who's been on the show before, Liat Ben Moshe, calls Mm. carceral sanism, which is the Mm -hmm. preference to sort of deal with these crises of capitalism and deal with or, or deal with in other cases um, what could be a health crisis or whatever through this entirely carceral logic, carceral preference of you know sweep them off the streets, take people from the not just from the streets, take people from their homes, take people from their families, sometimes directed by family members even right, um, mm-hmm. and divert them into prison, psychiatric care, you name it divert them into involuntary hospitalization which is exactly what yeah they're trying to streamline here Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely yeah and just the basic like one two here right that there's a kind of so if 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 adams's administration you know is sort of like a a story of crime in search of any data point or any (laughs) evidence possible since there is no crime wave um you know psychiatrizing criminality, right? Um, And turning, you know, the criminal into someone who is apparently mentally ill, right, is a really kind of important turn of phrase. And I mean, I know Eric Adams already has like won the award repeatedly for like most annoying, ridiculous conservative Democrat ever. But like, it's just incredible to listen to him conjure these irrational people on the streets who in fact can never help themselves and can't be in control of themselves, can't, don't even know what's happening, right? And that we have this sort of policing obligation to to deal with them, but by actually making that into illness instead of about the fantasy of some crime they committed. I mean, I mean, I think we see where this is going just right from the get-go. It's really dramatic. Yeah, it's the classic translation of a structural issue into something that's inherently biologically wrong with some segment of the population, right? And in, in many ways, that's what kind of makes this classic death panel content more so than the like carceral aspect more so than the like intersection with psychiatry and and sort of state budgetary austerity is the fact that this is also taking a problem that you know has been getting ex- exponentially worse and essentially obscuring the actual context and cause and dynamic of the problem itself to translate it into this individual issue of like individuals in their particular pathology resulting in some kind of predestined, preordained, biologically coded behavior Mm. that they're just then acting out. The kind of idea that there's nothing that can be done save like a physical intervention of removal and sort of reassertion of treatment on the individual to fix the kind of circumstances of that individual's life that are actually the the thing that even is being identified as being unsightly, right? Which right. is the the sort of mm-hmm. very fact of the matter and, and part of the kernel here. So I'm glad that we get a chance to sort of pause on that and foreground it because, you know, when he sh- sort of frames this as a, not sort of, when he frames this as a moral mandate, you know, that, that the section I'm about to read, you know, he is really saying that 
this is New York City stepping up with compassion. Mm. I want to be mm. very clear from from the get go before we get into that framing that, you know, he is explicitly connecting this kind of manufactured crime panic with individual behavior that that he then wants to sort of target people for. So back to the announcement. Adams, you know, sets up the problem. There's the crime wave driven by unsightly waves of unhoused and mentally ill people. His team has a solution. What is the solution? He continues, quote, it is not acceptable for us to see someone who clearly needs help and walk past. For too long, there has been a gray area where policy, law, and accountability have not been clear. And this has allowed people in need to slip through the cracks. This culture of uncertainty, this culture of uncertainty has led to untold suffering and deep frustration. It cannot continue. We need to change that culture and clarify our expectations. No more walking by or looking away. No more passing the buck. Going forward, we will focus on action, care, and compassion. If severe mental illness is causing someone to be unsheltered and a danger to themselves, we have a moral obligation to help them get the treatment and care that they need. Today, we are embarking on a long-term strategy to help more of those suffering from severe and untreated mental illness find their way to treatment and recovery. It begins with an immediate shift in how we interpret our obligation to those in need and calls upon our outreach workers to take deeper actions and more intensive engagement. So what he's saying here is that there's essentially this kind of process of targeting and removing people for visibly being mentally ill, that this is merely a kind of longstanding disagreement in terms of policy and scope. Mm -hmm. It's like he's claiming that this is a kind of shortcoming in the law that he's sort of setting out to fix. What's actually going on here is is much more complicated and this is sort of setting up the fact that he's got this broader agenda and that this one recommendation and this sort of guideline change that he's announcing in this press conference the details of which we're sort of going to get into in a moment that that in and of itself is just part of a broader agenda where they're going to kind of rectify what they're calling holes in the mental health and hygiene law of new york state that are allowing people to sort of be in public and be visibly mentally ill. And so what they're going to do is not just decrease the standards for when someone can sort of be identified for this targeted removal and inpatient treatment, but they're also, you know, putting this as part of a larger agenda where they're going to try and clarify and expand some of these powers over folks who have mental health diagnoses and who are unhoused to sort of create, you know, a pipeline of um, admissions and inpatient admissions that are going to be driven primarily through first point of contact with police on the streets of New York. And I think it's interesting since, you know, one of our ways of reading this, like you, you know, previewed up front is that, oh, we're still, you know, it's still, uh, you know, 1875 or whatever, <laughs> is that there has to be the production of some kind of novelty here, even even though at the same time to make this seem very fixable, it's like, oh, we just accidentally wrote the laws in weird ways. It's this sort of, you know, techno reformism, perfectionism. You know, I think that's the sort of the sort of mechanism of quote unquote compassion here. But it's also this really interesting kind of rhetorical mixed bag, right? On the one hand, it feels very much like he's gesturing towards 
some sort of sense of of a drug crisis or you know of of a kind of medicalized narrative of addiction that's also a social narrative that is very like oh things have fallen apart in recent years um but also you know taking advantage of and really i would say sort of weaponizing although i'd probably say that this discourse existed to be weaponized but the sort of advent yeah. of mental health as as a kind of you know, thing to be talked about and a thing where awareness and recognition, right, is kind of the the language that we've been coached um, to internalize, you know, for the last five, 10 or so years in public health and through even like, you know, PSAs or whatever, you know, how many, you know, Democrat administrations in a row have emphasized, we need to deal with mental health. We need to recognize that it matters. And here, that recognition that visual identification, right, is just like, right. we're going to plug that directly into the history of institutionalization <laughs> and policing, which like, again, shouldn't be a surprise. But it's sort of interesting to me how, again, like, of course, Adams is sort of in search of a compelling story to, you know, make up why he has to, you know, do all of this. But it's really drawing on all of these sort of vague things, you know, that have kind of been circulating in the air as kind of allegories for crises in capitalism for especially, I think, the last like five or 10 years. And and then this is how we arrive at this place where it's suddenly sensible and compassionate to do something that's really, really, really old fashioned and rear guard. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really important point to drive home, which is that the paternalism justification mm. of we need to you know, we can no longer continue to walk by, mm -hmm. which practically sounds like an if you see something, say something directive to like call right? people out. like don't walk, don't just walk by that person who you see on the street and you think is socially aberrant in some way. Who you um, think should not in be fact, there. Maybe draw the police's attention to it sort right. of sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But also, um, you know, I think there, there's that aspect. And then there's also this um, one of the one of the, I think, rhetorical um, strategies that they've gone with is the idea to that sort of this is how it already is or certainly that it already should be but also that it already um, perhaps is in the press release document um, for example that they announced this with on, on like the uh, mayoral administration's website for example they say that uh, quote the directive issued by mayor adams today seeks to dispel a persistent myth that the legal <laughs> standard for involuntary intervention requires an overt act um, and what that means is that there is so there, there's a long history of this and it's different in every state but a big part of what they're um, trying to challenge i suspect that we'll get into this is the idea that if someone is going to be detained for psychiatric evaluation ultimately probably feeding into psychiatric hospitalization involuntary psychiatric hospitalization i should say um that there is a standard essentially saying that it has to be shown that they were demonstrating a harm to themselves or others. What they're mm -hmm. saying is that harm doesn't need to be demonstrably imminent. Um, they are also saying, as I think we'll get into here, that not only should the interpretation not be one strictly of harm, but that already police and, and everyone empowered to detain people should understand that it is not simply um, that harm to oneself or others does not simply constitute immediate harm also constitutes the uh, you know quote-unquote inability to take care of oneself and your you know daily needs which again we'll, we'll get more into into this I think in 
mm-hmm. in, in a second. Um, but I, I just wanted to sort of like raise this and maybe kind of uh, cue us up for this because I think mm-hmm. um, it's important to say from from the top that this is something that um, I think I do think a lot of people um, even I remember when we when we published the piece right in the nation there were a lot of people even there was like some like rose emoji guy who like got mad at us saying like oh my god like they're going like these these people who like claim to like their book is called health communism and yet they're like going against universal health care as though the detention of people into involuntary hospitalization mm-hmm. was some kind of like fucking social welfare program for people to get mental health treatment it's absolutely not it, this is about sweeping people off the fucking street taking people out of their homes and like detaining them outside of society and in reality on on this issue for example this is like a long-standing tension that has to do with what is called parents patriae under legal authority of the state essentially which is the idea that the state must care for people who cannot care for themselves and the definition of who is someone who cannot care for themselves and in what way the state should intervene which is, as we've talked about so many times, primarily done now through carceral apparatuses, right? Through Mm -hmm. carceral means. Those definitions have a long history of contention that is still very much ongoing. You know, this is not some... Mirror oversight. This is is not some mirror oversight, Mm -hmm. but also to my point, this is not some instance where like the arc of history has already bent or whatever. Like this is an actively contentious and frankly, pretty fucked up set of systems that we continue to deal with this with. And in many states, Adams, you know, would be right, for example, that like the the interpretation of who can be involuntarily committed. Like, I mean, in many states, you can be involuntarily committed for, you know, quote unquote, not being able to take care of yourself um, or, or, or things like that, depending on who who and how obviously makes that decision. But it's not the case. Certainly everywhere there is like a a broad variety of different types of involuntary commitment statutes, some of which, you know, in some states do go very broad like this, like they're Mm -hmm. asking for. And New York is actually quite specific. New York's Mm -hmm. are, you know, they they could be (laughs) better. They could be better if it was going to if this process was going to be done at all. I don't think it should be done at all. But like New York's criteria are more stringent than other states and in part that is because of like the long history of new york as a really big site of psychiatric institutionalization Mm -hmm. throughout the last centuries and that's really why i wanted to foreground us with like what is adam saying the problem is and what is adam's framing his solution as making an intervention in because again this kind of idea of like the real problem here is that you have a group of people in public view who are not being treated properly, you know, within our current system of mental health care, in their opinion. And if we were to simply target those people for intensive psychiatric inpatient treatment, theoretically getting them on some sort of stable medication regimen, we could then discharge them. And then what? Right. And then what? You have someone back on the streets, still in the same material circumstances where you pick them up, except for they're on medication now. Congratulations. I'm sure that absolutely fixes all of the problems, Mayor Adams. And so this is part of the translation that's going on. Is the issue at hand 
that we need to get people who are not on medication onto medication. Absolutely not. It is the fact that we live in a political economy of health where our mental health care system has been not only stripped for parts, but fully commodified and reoriented towards a kind of productivity enhancing, you know, specialty of medicine. Is it the fact that, you know, healthcare is decentralized and a fucking mess? Yes. Is it the fact that housing is super expensive and not a right? Absolutely. Is any of this fixed by targeting people, traumatizing them, removing them from their circumstance without their consent and getting them on medication? No. This isn't giving them a choice about medication, but this is also not giving them the kind of lifeline that it's being framed as. This is being framed as a kind of moral mandate to medicate people, but that is, and this is not to be critical of medication, like, or psychiatric medication in general. This is critical of, like, what problem are we solving and with what tool? And is this a tool that, like, solves the problem that we're we're stating that it's solving, right? And this is what I think so many people miss and goes totally over people's heads when you kind of approach a critique of psychiatry. And that's what I think, you know, this kind of person who's like, well, these fuckers don't, like, uh, believe in universal health care, like, don't understand is, like, Okay, but, you know, simply getting someone on on medication when, like, the entire rest of the healthcare system exists in this state of organized abandonment. And the the rest of the entirety of their economic life. Right. Like, (laughs) is healthcare simply, like, a prescription and no strings attached? Because that's really what Mayor Adams is saying is a moral imperative that New York City has to deliver to this population that it's going to target and identify and, you know, put into this sort of process of putting them in the context of care that then they are not going to have any access to as soon as they're out of the inpatient context. And so the kind of problem that he's solving is is completely different from what he's stating. The kind of solution that he's using to solve that problem solves a different problem, which is getting people who are not on medication on medication. But that's also not what he's saying he's doing, right? Like he's saying he's solving the crime wave, which is Again, placing additional burden of stigma on a population that is so thoroughly stigmatized that you cannot like even encounter an imaginary of a, an unhoused person that doesn't reproduce stigma, whether that's like a representation of them in a film, a fucking commercial, a book in someone's mind. You know, this is like the, one of the most stigmatized roles, social roles in society is someone without shelter and what Eric Adams is doing is simply medicalizing the condition of being unhoused He's, and, and sort of saying that we fix that with medication and then nothing after the prescription. And that's really kind of what the critique is. It's not a critique of like pharma even. It's a fucking critique of like social policy and mm. of, you know, state austerity and sort of what we frame as being why we pay for certain types of care and what the point of care even is to begin with. Exactly. I mean, I think we're going to go through the mayor's 11-point legislative agenda. Um, But I think as we do, it's so important to hold this, the portal to all of those proposals, like in mind, like what is it that has to happen in order to even begin enacting this agenda? And it is that substantial reinterpretation, sort of forced reinterpretation of existing law, right? And so the mayor says, Um, The mayor says in his uh, press conference that job one is to make it universally understood by our outreach workers, hospital staff, and police officers that New York law already allows us to intervene when (laughs) mental illness prevents a person from meeting their basic human needs 
causing them to be a danger to themselves. The grammar there was very sly, right? Taking the thing, um, you know, that the law says and, and reading a whole bunch of new things into it. Well, if someone is visibly <laughs> mentally ill and we judge that they're not meeting their needs, that must mean they're a danger to themselves. Each component of that worth being said, worth being said like visibly uh, vi- yeah. one visibly mentally ill, two <laughs> yeah. unable to meet their needs. Th- what's the third one? Three sorry, danger the- to themselves. Right, three danger to themselves. Hmm. Like each one of those is like okay, according to what criteria, according to who, and what Adams is saying in no uncertain terms is among other things, according to cops, mm-hmm. according to cops and social workers, or all of these people who don't currently have that vested authority per se. And you know, he names this as a myth, a, a misunderstanding that. We cannot provide involuntary assistance unless the person is violent, suicidal, or presenting a risk of imminent harm. And so there's that slide, right? And I think if we hold that massive expansion of state power and delegation of state power to the police, to social workers, we'll see all of the various people um, being sort of deputized under this plan. But hold that is the substantial change, right? That is the that's the real shift at play here. That's the kind of vector that's authorizing um, or ultimately implementing everything that you were just saying be in this sort of dramatic increase in the idea of what is a sort of medicalized, unacceptable status in public space. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And of course, you know, what this overlooks is is numerous. And that's really in a lot of ways what we're going to be getting into in the rest of the, the episode. But, you know, these things that Adams calls gaps in the state mental hygiene law are actually hard-won protections that are flimsy at best yeah. as they currently exist that were put in place as part of the work of decades of, of deinstitutionalization. And this ignores the real problem of what's going on, as we're saying. But, you know, a lot of the coverage of this is really focused on, you know, how this is a kind of majorly sort of violent measure of, of sweeping people and picking them up. And that's definitely a huge part of it. But this ideological work of sort of translating what the purpose of very sort of straightforward mental health law is and sort of doing this work of translating in the public perspective and also in these um, sort of municipal guidelines and directives about professional conduct and behavior. This really shows how, you know, stigma is not just about sort of what happens in the cultural sphere or what just happens in the law itself, but also in the way things are implemented and acted upon. And this Mm -hmm. is a perfect example. So the law that he's referencing is not long or hard to find. This is Section 9.41 of Chapter 27, Title B of the Mental Health and Hygiene Law of New York State, called Emergency Assessment for Immediate Observation, Care, and Treatment, Powers of Certain Peace Officers and Police Officers. And this says, very specifically, any peace officer when acting pursuant to his or her special duties or police officer who is a member of the state police or an authorized police department, blah, 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 may take into custody any person who appears to be mentally ill and is conducting himself or herself in a manner which is likely to result in serious harm to the person or others. Then the rest of the law is just about where people can be taken once that's the directive. So it's it's just this sort of one sentence of manner which is likely to result in serious harm to the person or others, which is the sort of um, idea that's being expanded here. And what uh, right. some of Adams's plan... Just notably, which, again, you know, does not say what he is asserting that it says is the right. point. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> and, you know, what Adams's plan is essentially sort of a directive to is to lower this standard across the board for 
when someone is constituting, you know, sort of being a danger to themselves or others. And, you know, this was not a, a high bar to begin with. And essentially, you know, just to read some language for um, how the New York State Office of Mental Health has sort of directed professionals to reinterpret this guideline can maybe set the stage for this before we get into their broader plan, which is about sort of taking this and expanding it to all sorts of other aspects of the law. They say the new admission standards count for a person with mental illness who displays an inability to meet basic living needs. And that uh, inability to meet basic living needs qualifies under the involuntary admission standard for dangerous acts to self. A person with a mental illness can meet criteria for involuntary admission even when there is no recent dangerous act. And here's another um, memo from the Office of Mental Health. According to the Office of Mental Health, Section 9.41 authorizes the removal of a person who appears to be mentally ill and displays an inability to meet basic living needs, even when no recent dangerous act has been observed. And so it's really sort of taking this very straightforward framework and putting it in the context of saying, no, you know what? Being able to sort of clean yourself, right? That is something that is needed for the public safety. And so for that capacity, we're going to sort of be able to target people for removal. And it's about really kind of expanding the training and happening in a lot of ways without actual sort of supervision because this is happening in like very small kind of informal ways. Right. So with that said, again, these are, as B mentioned, this was uh, what she was running through was the sort of the immediate guideline changes, which among other things say, you know, the, these things that uh, B was pointing to, which is despite the fact that the law says specifically you know, this thing about harm, they are asserting that there is a much broader interpretation of that that includes ability to take care of oneself. And so in addition to all of that, Adams also at the same time in the same press conference released a 11 point legislative agenda that they have also brought to Albany to the state capitol to try and get implemented. And I'm going to read some portions of this. I'm actually going to probably read most of the 11 points, not like in their entirety, but I'm going to address most of them. And I want us to just kind of walk through these and kind of address them just to note. um, I find some of the uh, word choices in this document quite objectionable. just going to read them unvarnished. So uh, apologies for that. But um, let's start with the uh, beginning of the document, the background, which is sort of the reasoning that they give for sort of why they're seeking these 11 changes um, in in this legislative agenda, why they're they're, um, looking for these changes, which would ultimately, as we're talking about, significantly streamline, not only streamline the process of uh, people becoming involuntarily committed, but as we'll see, actually in in some cases like uh, make it more likely for people who have been involuntarily committed before to get committed again Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and also uh, extend the time frame of some of those commitments. So um, here, here's a section under a section called background. Um, Can I just start reading from this plan quote involuntary hospitalization and assisted outpatient treatment, which is basically uh, which is essentially outpatient institutionalization um they listed here as court ordered outpatient care um noting commonly known as aot um so assisted outpatient treatment involuntary hospitalization and assisted outpatient treatment are essential components of a functional public mental health system many people with psychotic disorders experience anosognosia lack of insight 
um, a neurological deficit, which can leave them unable to recognize their own mental illness symptoms and need for treatment, no matter how apparent these may be to observers. While voluntary care is always preferable, it is uh, not always a realistic expectation when a person in the throes of psychosis does not believe they are ill and or has delusions that mental health professionals seek to harm rather than help them. You know, I I am screaming over here. (laughs) Yeah, Like I said, the language is, I mean, I I think the most damning thing you can say about this plan is like reading the fucking thing. Right. And that, you know, just just to make that point, you know, I I am a historian of science and, and of medicine. It's like, it's very frustrating to see a series of metaphors that have absolutely no empirical grounding. Like all of those statements and assertions are really performative wishful thinking. Those are, those things are not true. I I defy them to show me a neurological deficit. I'd love to see where that is in the brain. Really would love to see that (laughs) and love to know, love to know from what, you know, peer reviewed um, body of knowledge, the throes of psychosis emerges as a, as a visualizable phenomenon. I mean, it's like, you know, often if I'm teaching an introductory kind of course and, you know, trying to give um, students approaching the history of psychiatry for the first time, you know, some sort of basic building blocks to think with, right? You know, one of the most sort of intuitive ways to understand the history of pathologization is, of course, that, you know, you psychiatrize um, forms of socially stigmatized behavior, unacceptable behavior. And this paragraph is like par excellence, right? It's like, oh, you know, people have a magical neurological deficit in which um, they don't realize they're behaving in a way that we don't approve of. And that is the pretext here to take away uh, any, you know, any agency that they have over their own lives. Just galling. Absolutely Absolutely. galling. I would also say that they present this symptom as a uncritical, like totally accepted thing. And this is one of the most contested uh, theories in biopsychiatry right now. And also within the realm of like memory care and Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. like there was like a whole discussion of like how this uh, diagnostic category intersects with like racialization as well. And they just throw it out as unlike everyone knows that psychotic people lack reason and therefore like we cannot trust when they say that they're afraid of mental health professionals and while it's preferable to get their consent you know for treatment it's not entirely necessary so here's our plan for how to force them into care you know in a way that is possibly more traumatic than their past experiences with mental health care that was already quite carceral Mm -hmm. and just to say when we say this is very 19th century. I think this is the perfect example. Let's just throw a italicized Latin sounding word out, anosignosia, and let that stand on its own. Oh, oh, there's a term for that, right? That feels incredibly like progressive era gilded age, you know, as our psychiatrists have taught us, anosignosia, right? Like that really is the... It's just really, it's it's truly astonishing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate all of that uh, context, especially what uh, you were saying, Jules, because while I could echo a lot of those points from my sort of uh, perspective as an angry dilettante, I do really appreciate <laughs> your perspective as a medical historian. Um, but also so, an angry dilettante uh, yes. part-time. Yeah. We're all, you know, exactly. Um, we're all moonlighting. <laughs> so uh i'm just gonna continue for a part of this this is again the setup to the the sort of legislative agenda 
Um, the New York laws that facilitate treatment in these circumstances, again, involuntary hospitalization, including outpatient institutionalization, have numerous flaws and gaps, adding mightily to the city's challenges in meeting the needs of its most vulnerable residents with severe mental illness. Mayor Adams' psychiatric crisis care legislative agenda, the document I'm reading from, takes aim at 11 legal barriers to psychiatric crisis care, by which they mean involuntary hospitalization. They, they say this in a nice way here, but later they say it's literally barriers to institutionalization, basically. 11 barriers to psychiatric crisis care and crisis avoidance. Five that prevent the timely and effective provision of hospital care. Five that prevent the use of AOT, that's outpatient uh, institutionalization, um, with individuals stuck in the mental health system's revolving door. And one that presents coordination of care between inpatient and outpatient providers, etc. It must be stressed that the legislative agenda is not intended as a cure-all to the full range of challenges facing the city's mental health system. Not all of the conspicuous holes in our safety net lend themselves to legislative patches. Okay. I mean, <laughs> if you're not calling for innovative public-private solutions with that phrase right there, then I don't know what you're doing. Right. Some must be mended through additional investment of resources, solutions to persistent staffing challenges, and other policy reforms. Some anyway. can be fixed through simply ushering guideline changes in without supervision or input <laughs> from anyone else and just directing professionals to behave differently. So um, I'm going to jump to the next section, which is headlined Barriers to Hospitalization. <laughs> oh, my God. They I just straight up kidding. said it. They said it. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, they they kind of play they kind of play coy <laughs> in in the actual like paragraph setup right before that, but then in big bold all caps letters, barriers to hospitalization. Next page. Not kidding. Barrier number one, all caps. New York's legal standard for involuntary hospitalization, um, in parentheses, mental illness, quote, likely to result in serious harm, unquote, to self or others, the statute that B just read from earlier, is often interpreted too narrowly, denying <laughs> desperately needed treatment to those who are not demonstrably violent or suicidal or engaging in blatantly dangerous conduct. When a person is experiencing psychosis and refusing care, the key determination under New York law in assessing their need for involuntary hospitalization is whether their mental illness is, quote, likely to result in serious harm, unquote, to the person or others. But the law provides scant guidance as to what constitutes the, quote, serious harm that must be found likely to result. An all-too-common interpretation is that a person must demonstrate a risk of violence, suicide, or grievous bodily harm. This excludes many mentally ill individuals whose risk of, quote, serious harm is less overt, but no less real. Less overt harm. Yeah. Ah, I see the harm on. inflicted perhaps to someone's psyche from walking past them on the street. <laughs> So this, um, so it, it this includes then. B already kind of said this. So um, it, they want this um, not just registered in their interpretation of the law as Adams already kind of instituted as a matter of new uh, city policy, but they want it um, written into state law that this include then quote those unable to recognize their urgent need for treatment and quote those whose mental illness prevents them from meeting their basic survival needs of food clothing shelter or medical care again all things that capitalism 
is much more uh-huh. uh, on the hook for, I would say. They continue. Right, Solution. and again, can you solve that with just simply getting someone on medication and kicking them back out into the same material circumstances? No. <laughs> hey, you know, <laughs> many of the city's uh, many holes in the in the social safety net can't be solved through policy alone. But anyway. you know what we can do? Make more. <laughs> yeah, we Make can just them faster. Pop, pop some more holes in there. Yeah. Turn some of those oh, yeah. holes into water slides straight into the prison system. <laughs> um, they continue. Solution. Add language. Each of these is set up like this, like barrier number X solution, like description, and then all caps solution. So solution, add language to the legal definition of likely to result in serious harm, making it explicit and beyond debate that when untreated mental illness leaves a person unable to meet their basic survival needs and or helpless to avoid psychiatric deterioration, (sighs) involuntary hospital care is warranted. Do you notice that little escalation there? Helpless to avoid psychiatric deterioration. So part of it is something that could be happening in the future that's not even happening right now. So now we're, we're, you know, giving the power to predict the future um, to agents of the state and the police. So nice, nice little way for them to crank up the volume in solution. Right. Which notably, uh, as of at least, I don't know, deinstitutionalization uh literature that i have read from at least the 70s on it's like widely professionally understood that psychiatrists and social workers are not able to you know predict these things very well yeah future like decompensation therefore this should probably not be part of the uh (laughs) the legal whatever but also this idea right of like any kind of psychosis is a slippery slope to future mm-hmm. harm mm-hmm. Right. is like the primary m- like stigma that the entire deinstitutionalization movement, the mad rights movement, yeah. the idea of carceral Satanism even exists to counter, which yeah. is this kind yeah. of idea of like mental distress, madness, non-normative behavior is if not immediately harmful itself in the moment, always already going to lead to some harm down the line and therefore must face like immediate intervention. And so that's, again, like the most important thing to understand when you're thinking about critiques of this. Um, This perfectly sets up uh, barrier number two, which is (laughs) barrier number two, hospital evaluations of whether a person's mental illness remains, quote, likely to result in serious harm, unquote, are often based solely on how the individual presents in italics in that moment, ignoring the broader context in which their current behavior must be understood and the risks of non-imminent serious harm. Their solution, solution, require a clinician evaluating the person's need for hospitalization to take account of all relevant and credible information presented to them, as well as the patient's current ability to adhere to essential outpatient treatment. (laughs) And their risk oh. of suffering harm over time. So you heard that correctly. They want to. Uh, they they are both arguing that um, the current system ignores quote ignores the broader context in which their current behavior must be understood, while also wanting to deliberately ignore the fact that many people do not have health care, <laughs> um, and yeah. cannot, for instance, adhere to outpatient treatment as directed by the state. Perhaps because. I don't know. They don't like. They there don't is have, no mental health care system. Actually. Right. They don't have, it doesn't yeah, exist. There is, right. Exactly. Well, and this is a little piece of deinstitutionalization history here. This is essentially expanding a concept mm-hmm. called community treatment orders, which was a kind of innovative legal 
um, strategy that was developed as a solution for how to sort of let people out of the asylums. What if we court mandated their adherence to medication? And yeah. that was the condition right. upon their reentry to the community was increased surveillance, supervision, and this adherence to the medication protocol. Now, what happened in a lot of cases and what led to the kind of rollback of this is that someone who was on one medication regimen that worked for them really well might go off of their medications because of structural or spatial access issues to the medication or to shelter. They get picked up, they're re-institutionalized uh, in an asylum, put on a different medication regimen by a random doctor who's a different doctor who thinks mm -hmm. differently than the doctor that's put them on whatever medication was working before. And then a condition from of their release from that facility is to abide by the treatment orders of that second doctor, regardless of what their prior medical history was. And these, this is sort of one of the like initial... Um, conundrums that like develops out of community treatment orders that leads to this not being actually a popular solution to be implemented. So this kind of policy gap, this barrier to hospitalization is uh -huh. like, oh, we came up with a policy that was bad. And it still exists in a lot of places and a lot of forms like the AOT is a version of the community treatment order already. So what if we just like expanded this thing that's not super great that advocates and activists hate and have been working against for 30 years and just mandate more treatment sort of regardless of the social and material context of that treatment? Yeah. Yeah. Then so uh, barriers three, four and five. I'm going to group together um, because they're all they're all significant enough to be mentioned. But the 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 bottom line, if you will, of barriers three, four and five that they list is dramatically expanding the scope of different professionals who can either refer someone into psychiatric uh, evaluation for potential involuntary hospitalization or who can make those determinations themselves. So, for instance, barrier number three. New York law grants authority to perform a clinical evaluation of a person's need for involuntary hospitalization or AOT exclusively to physicians in italics. Their solution, authorized psychologists, psychiatric nurse practitioners, and licensed clinical social workers to evaluate an individual's need for psychiatric hospitalization. In other words, dramatically expand, again, the scope of professionals who can make the determination that someone should be involuntarily, involuntarily hospitalized for a period a long period of time i think that all other questions aside relative to that point the number one thing is is this a category of authority we even want to expand and That's the answer right. is definitely no right exactly definitely not <laughs> um let's remove physicians from it <laughs> uh they also say in barrier four the range of mental health professionals authorized to serve as members of mobile crisis outreach teams is too limited that is in other words, this is the, the group of people who are delegated to be able to make re references into the system just to give like kind of a an overly simplified, I guess, overview of it. Um, their solution is really is almost like, I don't know, I just have to laugh reading this solution. Expand the range of potential members of these crisis outreach teams to include licensed mental health counselors and get this licensed marriage and family therapists. Oh, I so knew this great. was all a George Bush policy, compassionate conservatism, and here is the tell. Yeah. So you went to marriage counseling and, <laughs> you know, you ended up 
involuntarily hospitalized. Whoopsie. Thanks, Eric I'm just, Adams. I've just remembered <laughs> the absolute worst therapist I've... That's not true. I've had worse therapy, worse mental health clinicians in my life, but this absolutely vindictive, evil, transphobic uh, couples therapist who made my life a living hell years ago. And I'm just imagining her rolling up with a crisis uh, you know, team in New York City <laughs> and zealously, involuntarily, and hospitalizing people because I feel like she would have loved that. Absolutely. I mean, the sort of threat that this poses actually specifically in the context of like people discussing, you know, the psychiatric barriers to accessing transition care and how this could turn into a kind of funnel situation is just hard to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I will have things to say about that later. Yeah. Additionally, um, barrier number five, they want to essentially authorize, quote, mental health professionals working in a homeless shelter, unquote, um, to direct removal of people into psychiatric uh, institutionalization. So, so here we have an expansion wanna, of uh, carcerality in the sites that you're accessing services and supports exactly. that are already carceral in yeah. the first place. Exactly. Um, as we wrote about in the nation piece, it would be, this would essentially make it so that, you know, basic interactions with shelter staff would be much higher risk for like mm-hmm. everybody in the shelter. Cause you know, it's not stressful, um, more surveillance and supervision when yeah. you're having a hard time. Mm-hmm. So some of the following barriers, um, reference this thing that we've, we've talked about a little bit, uh, AOT or the, um, outpatient, uh, assisted outpatient treatment version of psychiatric institutionalization. This is like outpatient institutionalization, having to adhere to, um, really specific regimen. Again, soup, like, Think of this like, you know, stop me if you think that this is an inadequate uh, comparison, but think of this as like kind of in the same way that things like ankle bracelet monitoring expands the carceral sphere outside of sites of specific, you know, architectural incarceration, right? This is like the the psychiatric institutionalization version of that, if, if you will. Um, so uh, barrier number seven Screening of psychiatric hospital patients for assisted outpatient treatment eligibility has been inconsistent. Um, the lifeblood of any AOT program is the flow of individuals coming directly off psychiatric hospitalizations who have been flagged as, quote, revolving door patients based on multiple recent hospitalizations resulting from difficulties adhering to outpatient treatment. There is good reason to wonder whether the city's AOT program is connecting with the full cohort of individuals leaving hospitals who meet the legal criteria. Solution, make AOT, outpatient institutionalization, eligibility screening of psychiatric inpatients a standardized discharge planning practice for hospitals. In other words, like really administratively force these evaluations to happen to funnel people into this uh, further into the system. Um, like a short break for a, a health communism alert here. Uh, the <laughs> lifeblood of this program is the flow of individuals, <laughs> right? This here we go. Yeah. Once again, he admitted like the whole point of this policy is like we need to more smoothly, you know, condition the continuous flow of people through these extractive institutional settings, right? And in fact, we need to 
not just gro- grossly expand them in terms of deputizing a whole series of people to function uh, essentially as pseudo-psychiatric police, but here we need to also force every hospital <laughs> to you know, incorporate this kind of processing into its discharge practices in order to regulate and harmonize that flow of individuals, which is, of course, the lifeblood of this program. Because here, I really love this. They're telling us that the point of this, right, we're doing this for the benefit of the program, right? Right. This is to help this whole institutional system work better. We're really worried about how stressed the institutional system is. We've got to prioritize it more here so that we can better flow people through it like blood. Okay. I mean, this, I, I'm glad that you seized on that part in particular, because I think that really helps contextualize some of the other stuff. Because like the next thing, for example, barrier number eight, um, they say a court, uh, a New York Court of Appeals decision um, requires Department of Health and Mental Hygiene to obtain a person's consent before accessing the medical records it needs to establish AOT eligibility. Again, outpatient um, institutionalization eligibility. Individuals who don't want to participate in AOT often withhold consent. They note then in the paragraph at the very beginning of the paragraph under this header, uh, quote, while it is certainly preferable and common for a person to enter the city's AOT program willingly, AOT is an involuntary intervention by design. So they're, you know, again, they're saying we need to, uh, drop these protections these like privacy protections really that are i'm I'm sure completely inadequate that exist to like keep people's medical records from fucking damning them to institutionalization and from making the condition of any discharge of any kind with a mental health diagnosis come with essentially a community treatment order in other name you know and Mm -hmm. that's essentially what they're saying is that like the number one Con, like contributor to the crime panic is people not adhering to their medication is is, is patients that do not um you know adhere to doctor's orders yeah. and that this is like the number one priority for the motherfucking mayor of new york the subway is flooding constantly falling apart but no making sure to expand a nanny state to make sure that homeless people stay on their medication while offering them no other support or services that's the priority of the motherfucking mayor yeah. great cool and then, Love so it. barriers 9, 10, and 11, the final barriers remaining, are all similarly about expanding this system and making sure that more people are concurrently operating under it. So, uh, for example, um, they say for barrier number nine that many people who end up with outpatient institutionalization orders or AOT court orders um, many of the judges uh, that that decide those prefer to impose. Well, they say I'll just I'll, I'll quote quote many judges prefer to impose shorter terms. Their solution for this is quote amend language on the length of an AOT order from not to exceed one year to one year by default. So like mandatory, mandatory minimums. minimums. Mm-hmm. This is a mandatory um, minimum sentence. My favorite is number 10. Yeah, barrier number 10. uh, I won't read from this. I'll just like explain it. They say essentially that uh, it takes too much time to appear in court uh, to get someone involuntarily committed. So let's make it possible for physicians to appear in court via video chat. My favorite line is, Um, while some maintain that the Sixth Amendment establishes a respondent's right to have adverse (laughs) testimony presented in person, this should not be a concern. Some may say that this is a constitutional right. 
And I say, what's a right? <laughs> um, I mean, I do say what's a right, but we'll get to right. that. Not um, in this way. <laughs> uh, barrier number 11, the final barrier, uh, amounts to make it easier to be readmitted into the program. Uh, quote, solution, simplify the path for a recent AOT graduate to return to the program. Allow such a return upon a showing of substantial increase in mental illness symptoms, which interferes with the person's ability to maintain their health or safety. Imagine if we took that principle and instead of applying it to, you know, court supervised mental health care, applied it to making sure someone was able to be on SSI and Medicaid. Yeah. Right. Like, think, think about that for just a second. A little mm. counterfactual. I mean, this is a bullshit policy platform. This is in no way, shape, or form simply fixing little holes and oversights in, you know, some minor disagreement of language. This is essentially... Nor is it obviously the compassionate program of mental health uh, provision that they are portraying it as. Right. This is essentially, uh, you know, as Jules pointed out, this is taking a population, making them available for additional extractive abandonment right Mm -hmm. this is really ultimately what his policy is doing is saying you know what we don't yet currently optimize the way that we you know sweep seize and remove people from public space what if we were to optimize it and that's really kind of what you know this idea of extractive abandonment that Artie and i are playing with in health communism like describes Mm -hmm. is the way that we like take these things and we set up systems that make people available in a pipeline as a lifeblood of some kind of extractive process, right? And that that process of extraction becomes the primary priority, nothing to do with care, therapy, you know, survival, joy, experience of life that's not carceral. You know, what the point is at the end of the day is, have we made efficient the kind of process of sorting people, marking them and removing them or applying the kind of things that we've decided are going to make them acceptable for, for membership in the community? And this is, again, the kind of fantasy of constructing a perfectly healthy body politic through, you know, the kind of neoliberal interventions of, of sort of policy and targeted, you know, assessments and expansions of you know, the kind of pharmaceutical apparatus without any of the kind of actual supports that anyone would possibly need for an intervention of like this to produce any kind of like success or stability in someone's life. I can't see how this would do anything other than further traumatize people at this point. And it's not to say that like we should do nothing, right? Because the state of mental health care as a system is non-existent, um, especially in the state of New York. But to say that this is a problem caused by closing institutions and that this is a problem caused by our political economy is to fundamentally lie about what's going on. Yeah, I mean, it just, it strikes me, right? Again, the mechanism here in the great expansion of state power is a very old playbook. It's the criminalization of public status. So appearing disorderly or appearing not to be healthy or in control in this case, not appearing sane, right, in public, is the actual pretense and problem being identified. And it's all of this florid language as if, I mean, I think one really interesting 
question and nuts and bolts thing to get into and thinking about sort of what's 2022 about this and what's 19th century about this, right? Because <laughs> yeah. all of this is taking place in the rubble of a neoliberal state, right? Where just as you, you know, really, I think, been helping us understand be like what mental health care system, what healthcare system, period. And the extractive abandonment model helps us understand why it's so important to increase the flow of people who have public status has been criminalized into this system in order to generate forms of, you know, surplus value that can be extracted from their movement in and out. Um, but, you know, sort of the interesting, or it's interesting is a perverse word, the really, <laughs> the really terrifying in some ways question here actually is about asylums because there has been this, you know, little bit of kind of pushback or sort of snarky, you know, opposition to the closing, you know, of one asylum, you know, from, from Mayor Adams. And this sort of larger question, which is like, well, in the 19th century era in which this, you know, the roots of all of this legal armature, you know, originally were sort of set up and then well into the 20th century, you know, millions upon millions of people in the United States were institutionalized. And, yeah. you know, it was all sorts of people. It was, you know, like women who were stepping a little too far out of bounds. It was just a lot of kids, you know, a mm -hmm. lot of children were a lot kidnapped from their families, moved to new states, you know. It was it was queer and trans people. It was a lot of African-Americans, um, you know, people with language barriers. And of course, it was people with disabilities. But, you know, here we are in 2022. And I think, you know, part of what to me is so... I think part of what's so insidious and disturbing and also volatile and unpredictable here is that I think you're totally right that we have a sort of, you know, pharmacological modality in operation here, right? And I think, I think if we read, you know, into this document, it's sort of clear in between the lines that what the city is really envisioning ultimately is medication as the barometer. Can we, you know, met, you know, you know, through medication, sort of make put people back on the street and hopefully make them appear more palatable, you know, to this average kind of New Yorker that the mayor is imagining is the real constituency for which he was elected to represent, and you know, no one else. Um, but but then there are some other weird kind of. I think there's a weird tension there with the possibility, you know, the one that, you know, both you and Artie raised in that piece, like, is the mayor trying to bring back the the asylum system? You know, obviously there's no money to do that at present, but is that something that this is laying the groundwork for? And, you know, the thing that really stood out to me reading this, this document and also the mayor's press conference was like, one, you know, at first you, you read this and you're like, hold on, is the mayor really suggesting that there is essentially this, you know, huge population of people experiencing psychosis in public at any given time? Like what, like the work that psychosis as a concept is doing in these documents is truly unbelievably divorced from reality, all, all irony intended. But, <laughs> but then there's a moment, you know, at the beginning of that press conference in that paragraph that we, that, that you read all the way up front, right? where the mayor is conjuring these imaginary people that you see on the street. Um, and I think there's a really telling moment where the mayor, um, you know, refers to these New Yorkers and hundreds of others like them mm. who are in urgent need of treatment. And there's a reference later to a commitment from Governor Hochul to 50 new beds, 5-0, 
right? And so yep. I'm looking at this math here and I'm like, wait, hold on a second, right? They have to come with very small numbers because, you know, the neoliberal um, health infrastructure is so minimal, right? There's nothing, there's nothing available, right? They're talking about creating all of this policing apparatus, but clearly the revolving door is actually being proliferated, right? Because there's actually nothing else behind it. There's nowhere, there actually isn't at present a place to you know, sort of put all of these people yet, but here we are living in the United States, right? Where we see that there's no limit to the amount of money that could be spent on mass incarceration. And I don't think it's really beyond the pale to imagine, right? An increase in actual physical institutionalization in new, potentially new institutions, right? And I think that's part of really the kind of 2022 of it all in this um, whole policy announcement baked into the language, this real tension between on the one hand, wanting to go all in neoliberal scorched earth where everything is just lifeblood flowing through, you know, hospitals, right? Um, And really everything is pharmacological and, and an actual commitment to going as far as it takes to develop as much state power to incarcerate as required, right? Uh, So that on the one hand, this sort of carceralization of everything from, you know, the the person you meet at the, who's running the shelter, right? To, um, you know, the state overriding your rights under HIPAA and taking your medical records against your will, these sorts of intrusions of incarceration into the microcosms of everyday life and the microcosms of institutional institutionalization as a revolving door is also laying the groundwork for more long-term institutionalization. And, 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 you know, I think also there's another way to run these numbers maybe, which would sort of be like, instead of being committed against your will and held for many years, which is the sort of 19th and 20th century model here, it's more like you are picked up, held for a little bit, put on meds. And that just happens like as many times as possible, right? And so Mm -hmm. over time, it really adds up to basically being institutionalized in the sort of majority of your life, but it might be transpiring on this sort of micro, ostensibly temporary level, which is supposed to be what's compassionate about it, right? That it's not this kind of blanket, we're locking you up for your own good for the rest of your life, except it actually is we're repeatedly yes. taking away your freedom and micro-institutionalizing you um, over and over and over again, which sort of has the same accumulative effect. And I just, you know, I'm being speculative there, but I just kind of wanted to to kind of pull that out and, and sit with it and look at it because it's really, I mean, th- this is... A, a relentless form of violence, state violence, to be bearing down on people and to be styling that as compassion, as that moral mandate that, you know, to live in a society, we have the responsibility to come after people as many times as possible to make ourselves feel like public space is ordered and healthy, right? I mean, just the sheer amount of force required here is just kind of staggering. And when you stack it all up like that, I mean, the, I want to talk about, you know, the projections of future harm. Let's talk about the projection of future harm from the state of New York and, and the New York City uh, state. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. and So well put, Jules. There's, I feel like there's so much that I want to respond to uh, in there. I think what I'll, what I'll start with really is like, I really like this illusion of, of yours to the there being nothing behind the curtain like there's nothing behind the revolving door it's like practically i mean a lot of the process that you're describing is where this sort of idea that is often described uh yeah as this revolving door 
um, system just becomes a merry-go-round. Actually, you're just yep. like you know spinning around there uh, always. And this, you know, it's important to point out. Obviously, we could talk about. You know, I think that the three of us could you know get into the weeds of the history of this in various forms throughout different parts of the country and in the world, like for a very long time. But just to draw from like a couple of uh, a couple of things, sort of briefly, I mean. And this kind of goes to something that uh, B was talking about before with like the reason why there is sort of an outpatient institutionalization model, right? Um, As as I've kind of telegraphed before, it's not like these are new problems. These are ongoing debates that have been been going on for centuries. And in this particular form, actually, there have been lessons learned from this process already that have just been, you know, never really taken into account. Among them, for example... The form that the deinstitutionalization movement took in the 1960s, one of the things that they were, you know, trying to trying to do and achieve was to raise the barriers for um, involuntary commitments for being taken out of the community in the first place. Because as you know, Jules mentioned, and as we write about in Health Communism, there were so many reasons you could be taken out of society, including among them in the 19th century. Um, there's like one, like the Trans Allegheny what was it called lunatic asylum mm-hmm. yeah geez um mm-hmm. looking through the patient records for that as as one historian did they show for example reasons for being admitted reasons for being in, uh, institutionalized including stuff like politics <laughs> not like just the one word politics novel reading uterine derangement whatever the fuck that is <laughs> desertion by husband um, for example. And so, so there, you know, there's a, there's a long history of contention, uh, over this and however, how broad the reasons for commitment would be. But by like the 1960s, there gets to be this idea, this assertion that is more formally adopted in law and in policy that people should have a right to, uh, what is ultimately called quote, the least restrictive environment mm-hmm. unquote for this type of treatment um this is you know one of the ways that deinstitutionalization plays out that there is you know supposedly this right for um people to not be in these in right. like the total institution um though almost immediately because of the lack of actual supports the lack of like you know there, it's one thing to deinstitutionalize it's another thing to then actually like you know provide people with what is actually needed which is which you know still has not been done People contemporaneously to this, even in uh, in like law review at the time, literally refer this to this as an empty right. Yes, um, yeah. Which I think is just a, a fascinating and very important way to think wow. about this as a like this this right to you know be in community, this right to not be um, you know continuously institutionalized, whether in a total institution uh, or not, as you're alluding to, Jules, with this you know revolving door having no having nothing behind it thing that that right is a, a completely empty right and i mean I've, I've been going for a bit but there was there was so much i wanted no, to this is such a good point <laughs> well there was so much i wanted to respond to in that too because the other component of it obviously is the total possibility that we could see the building of new asylums yeah. um or the you know repurposing of existing carceral infrastructure for example or expansing of or expansion of existing like prisons and jails to include more psychiatric holding uh, situations for like short and long term, and I think the reality of that is, as um, I think we've alluded to before, Eric Adams himself has said really specifically before that the closing of Willowbrook, which is one of yeah. the biggest like public 
atrocities or whatever Which pointed to in was a facility for children by the way right. most people hear this and they think oh you know willowbrook must be this famous example so it must be adults in like a psychiatric kind of one co- flew over the cuckoo's nest situation this so was, it was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest for kids but also worse right Parker. and, and yeah. primarily this was one of the sort of state hospital schools so this is where a lot of like physically and developmentally disabled children were warehoused so right. you know the the sort of famous example is actually not an example of adults but and and so the 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 point though that i'm getting to is eric adams has explicitly and i'm gonna totally cut in the audio clip of him saying this the other year um eric adams has explicitly called the closure of willowbrook and institutions like it a quote overreaction to concerned to like over concerned activists and you, and you see, we made a big mistake when Willowbrook, uh, a few employees uh, harmed uh, those who were patients in Willowbrook on Staten Island. There was a reaction from the advocates to close down Willowbrook, deinstitutionalize those who need around the clock services. And so, as we mentioned in the, the Nation piece, for example, like there's yes, there's this commitment from Kathy Hochul saying uh, we're going to add like 50 beds or whatever. Um, I think just something to keep in mind for this, obviously, in terms of the possible reemergence of the total institution in the 21st century. Um, there is the well understood idea from prison industrial complex abolitionists that if you build it, if, if they build it, they will fill it, but also keeping But also, I think it's important to keep in mind, if they fill the existing capacity, it's likely that they will build more, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And this is not just a slippery slope argument that we're making. We're talking about the literal capacity that would be required to actually enact this recommendation verbatim, not even the not even the policy platform 11 mm-hmm. points of, you know, reducing barriers to hospitalization or whatever the fuck, you know, like I'm talking about the simple change in sort of interpretation and professional guidelines that Adams announced with this policy platform that we just went through. That itself, like, would require a kind of infrastructure of inpatient beds that literally does not exist in New York, that also used to exist in more recent memory, but in the sort of last 20 years in the 2000s has actually experienced the most rapid shrinkage of any aspect of the healthcare system in New York State. Not only shrinkage in, ter- in terms of available beds and available, you know, appointments, shrinkage in terms of like actual spatial locational access, right? We're talking about sort of things that are driven both by, you know, different changes in payments that make these beds less um profitable for for-profit hospitals or for hospitals that are not run by the state who begin to sort of deprioritize them. And so you see the shrinkage there. You also see it in the kind of consolidations of hospital mergers, taking beds literally out of the community and relocating them in these sort of more central locations on big, fancy new campuses. And so what infrastructure exists right now already is like way past capacity, has a really long waiting list and cannot meet the needs of the population that, you know, uses it or could possibly use it at the current sort of uh, pipeline set up for how these kinds of involuntary hospitalizations work. So to expand the intake point and to sort of increase the flow of this lifeblood that the Adams administration is sort of committing to and trying to sort of get 
the entire state of New York to commit to as a project is in and of itself actually constitutive of a call to build and a call to expand these things. Because it's not that it's a slippery slope argument, it's that it's a logistic point, right? And, And I think a lot of people sort of miss that. It's not that like, oh, if we're not careful, we're going to just slip back into the vibes. And then like, you know, 20, 30 years down the line, we're going to end up with asylums again. It's like, no, no, no. Like we could see breaking ground on a project on a new total institution in the next two to three years as an immediate requirement to the decisions that were announced at the end of November of 2022. You know, there are these immediate reverberations in terms of what the current system can provide and and would be able to do in terms of increasing capacity that are going to guarantee a need to rely on more systems of warehousing. Exactly. And part of the reason why is that like the problem, right? Like the way that these beds disappeared, um, the fact that there isn't a, a promise for an actual less restrictive environment, that when institutionalization ended, that there were really no alternatives stood up that, that were widely promised as being made available in the community. Why that stuff didn't happen has nothing to do with anything other than fiscal austerity, with the ways that we pay for care and who deserves care. And the kind of idea of this revolving door being like a naturalized problem with our current system of mental health completely ignores like why the revolving door even came to exist in the first place. And part of that had to do with changing the payer on institutionalization. Like a lot of people talk about deinstitutionalization as a moral mandate or a kind of intellectual decision where the United States just kind of collectively, you know, realized that it was a mistake and that we shouldn't be warehousing people in this capacity. And that once you sort of start collecting and hoovering people up and putting them institutions and keeping them out of the community for really long periods of time that we don't actually know how to transition people back to the community. We're just so good at locking people up for decades and decades. And there's never any plan for helping people get out once they've been locked up. We see this also in the context of like literal incarceration and in terms of immigration detention as well. There is no sort of plan for what happens after the arrest encounter that's going to lead to the um, involuntary removal from the the community, right? And so you have this framework where we talk about, oh, you know, and deinstitutionalization, everyone just kind of came to their senses. And now as a result of letting people out, we have this revolving door and admissions are so short and people are in and they're out and they're not getting the care. Well, Well, what about the fact that when Medicare and Medicaid were stood up, the payer changed and we went from asylums being a state budget line issue to something that also the federal government was paying for. Mm -hmm. And some of those Medicaid payment rules started to put caps on admission lengths. And what was the actual driver of deinstitutionalization? Not moral authority or moral imperative or, you know, recognizing the fact that the, the people inside institutions had human rights. But no, it was driven by budgetary reasons. It was driven by austerity in the 70s that states were facing. And the fact that, no, it was much easier to actually let people out and to sort of stand up these shorter term outpatient and inpatient options that could be funded by Medicaid. And the revolving door is really kind of more constitutive of the payment terms of various Medicaid proposals state to state than it is to do with any sort of clinical guidelines. And of course, Mm -hmm. that reality is nowhere to be found in Adam's conceptualization of like what the problem is, what the solution is, 
what the revolving door even constitutes as a phenomenon, right? Ultimately, this is about austerity. This is about who deserves care and what kind of care they deserve and what kind of care as a state, as a society, we're willing to even pay for. Yeah, I think that just so elegantly lays it out. And I feel like we've really, you know, sort of taken the time to slow down in this policy and understand how in many ways this is sort of a predictable outcome of the last 40 years. It, again, doesn't really like shock me. I think the the viciousness of it, you know, rhetorically and in execution is just kind of galling at points. But in many ways, this is exactly what we would expect to be the kind of, you know, follow through after all of those years of austerity and the actual, you know, neoliberal reasons that deinstitutionalization happened the way that it did and the continuing privatization of cities like New York and the privatization of of public space, you know, this sort of uh, vicious gentrifying impulse that is leading to securitization, you know, um, sort of happening through the the auspice of, of mental health care. But I think the one, you know, thing I would just want to add to that too is like ultimately what do these systems, you know, allow the state to do? And that is engage in class warfare. And that yeah. really to me is the intensification that we're looking at here. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about which historical examples I thought were kind of compelling, you know, to to bring up in relation to to these proposals. And, and I kept thinking about the institutionalization, the involuntary institutionalization of queer and particularly trans women, um, you know, in the mid, mid 20th century, really well into the 70s, uh, and when it became kind of an incredible political lightning rod, because I think it just reminds us that these sorts of empty signifiers like psychosis, when it's turned into a policy, you know, instrument can really be, you know, utilized to prosecute any kind of class and status-based war on the part of the state, you know, that it wants to do. And I was just thinking about, you know, how many, how many psychiatric records I read, you know, in the research for my book where black trans teenage girls or young black trans women were given, you know, diagnoses of psychosis, of schizophrenia and delusion as a pretext to pull them off the streets, pull them out of their community where they lived with other trans women, where organizing as sex workers were getting involved in radical, you know, left politics, radical black politics, radical gay liberation politics, and the way that being pulled in and out of these institutions is also designed to destroy political solidarity. It, you know, is a way to pull the rug out from underneath political movements. It inhibits you know, class solidarity, it inhibits political act activation in the same way that it inhibits, you know, so many other things like, you know, enjoying a life free of severe trauma and violence from the state or having access to any, you know, modicum of stability or enjoyment in life um, because you've been deemed not deserving. But those criteria, right, are so malleable. And I think that when it comes to these sorts of, you know, policies, to me, one of the big takeaways is like when when the state is granted this degree of power, it will exercise it. And, yeah. you know, it, the ability to determine who is the proper target of that exercise of power is 100% arbitrary because it's entirely politically driven and economically mm -hmm. driven. And so it can change over time. I mean, I, you know, it's like the way that this policy in New York will be disproportionately applied to black New Yorkers is just going to be, you know, one of its many horrifying, you know, impacts. But I think that historically, 
to me, again, it's just like seeing how institutionalization has been used as a tool in the state's arsenal to uh, break off entire chunks of people, remove them from the social body in order to make them surplus, um, is also about politically deactivating them, right? And saying that, you know, you can't, you're not allowed to um, organize, you know, as a group, you're not allowed to make demands, you're not allowed to participate in the distribution of resources and life chances. And, you know, these, these sorts of mechanisms and the concepts undergirding them are just so vague on purpose, are so expansive, are so malleable, and better believe it that psychiatrists are ready to play a game, that social mm. workers will take to this role with relish and glee, and that the people that work in these systems are absolutely not going to put up a fight. I just think that like one of the underplayed stories of the past year, especially you know, when, when there are these sorts of legal or policy changes, like for example, the end of the right to abortion, where we've seen all of these um, healthcare providers in so many states acting so maliciously and conservatively, refusing to provide healthcare that's not illegal yet because it might have the sort of, you know, um, it might take on the appearance of abetting abortion, right? Like it just reminds right. us of how cowardly the people who enact these policies really are, how cowardly these systems based on a private insurance reimbursement scheme, based on administrative nihilism, just how willing these folks are to play their role as cops. And they will take to it and they will further their own, you know, agendas in pursuing um, and ratifying their belief that certain people are fundamentally undeserving because they they live their lives in a way that is, you know, uh, you know, simply undesirable, right, or stigmatized. And I just think that this is, you know, another cog in that machine. But the moment that we grant all of this power to the state, like it's going to use it, it's going to use it in ways we haven't predicted yet. And I just really think that at every single level here, we've sort of indicted not just the ostensible motive or rationale, but the means of execution. And clearly the impacts will just be, you know, across the board, um, unacceptable. And frankly, I mean, I just like this whole time we've been talking, I've been restraining myself from not flipping my desk over and throwing it across <laughs> the room because there's nothing makes me so angry um, as this kind of righteous bullshit, you know, liberal compassion nonsense. That's like, actually, we are so <laughs> yes. enlightened. We know how to harm people and separate them out from the body politic, isolate them, extract from them and throw them back into the public, you know, hopefully broken down and made palatable for us because that's really our special mandate as people, you know, in charge and as part of the ruling class. And it really just is, I think, so contemptible. I mean, I just, you know, I often feel a kind of sense of disgust at, you know, the way these sorts of um, forms of, of social and state and economic violence are rationalized. But this is really some of the most smug nonsense that I've ever heard. And it really, <laughs> really, really, really just like comes back for me to that, that those basic politics of people trying to, you know, shut down that revolving door at Bellevue in the 60s and 70s that was just destroying whole communities in New York, communities of queer and trans people, communities of sex workers, communities, you know, that were populated largely by poor people of color. And it's just like, when will that war and its unconscionable alibis ever run out of steam, let alone, you know, face a new kind of mobilization. Because I think part of what we're getting at too is like to mobilize against this, right? We have to toss out so many 
false grammars and, you know, sort of superficial reformist impulses and the whole rubric of deservingness uh, as the only reason that people get to be in the world or not. Like, enough with that. There's no way you can reform your way or improve that concept to a point where it isn't fundamentally, you know, creating this power imbalance in the first place. So well said. I mean, absolutely. To all of those points, and I think maybe to bring us to a close, if you will, by um, bringing things back to um, this thing that I mentioned earlier, which is Liat Ben Moshe's mm-hmm. term carceral sanism. I don't do this often, but I actually really wanted to bring in a short piece from our book, from BNI's book, uh, Health Communism, which had to put like the, the way that, um, you know, book timelines work. Like, you know, we wrote this, like th- this particular part I'm about to read, we wrote this like last year, but this could just as easily, I think, summarize so much of the whole thing. So if you don't, if you guys don't mind, um, Please. that could. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I wanted to just, um, to, to bring this in. Cause I, I think at a, I, I was revisiting this and just sort of at like a, almost a meta level, I was thinking like, wow, this actually kind of says everything that I wanted to say, um, over the course of this, um, recording. So here, here's that part. Um, this is from the chapter called madness. Carceral sanism is based on the fundamentally flawed notion that the mere existence of madness threatens the safety and order of society. As a result, the question of what to do about madness prompts solutions that give preference to coercive and carceral practices at the expense of the individual experiencing distress. The premise of sanism relies heavily on cultural misperceptions of danger and disorder, a sort of pre-limiting cultural imaginary characterized by the central political goal of exclusion, justified by pathology, and reinforced by professional medical expertise. The medical professions have developed an ill-fitting and misguided commitment to conceptual biological cyclicality that does not reflect the realities of lived experience of illness, madness, or impairment. Thus, a distinction between the mad and the not mad is constructed and reproduced by medical and psychiatric expertise, which differentiates between those who can be returned to a state of perceived normalcy through rehabilitation and biomedical intervention, and those considered to be irreparably impaired different or otherwise clinically unable to be made normal. This is a key ideological tenet of sanism. Those who can be cured through biomedical interventions became the living well, able to return to work, life, and freedom with pharmaceutical support. These living well were considered rehabilitated, able to reintegrate into society as valuable, that is, productive, members. Sanism represents the imagined preference for the living well. The outcome of this dualistic understanding was that those who could not meet the rehabilitative expectations of psychiatrists were considered to be irreparably damaged and thus categorically stripped of their personhood, agency, and autonomy. This systemic preference for confinement, a carceral preference, was enabled by the perception and certification of an individual's permanent not-normalness, a determination ultimately made according to perceived pathology and along the complex and compounding nexus of racialized hate and prejudice. As Liat Ben Moshe writes, quote, for psychiatry to become a legitimate profession, let alone a science, a separation was created between those who can be treated, the mentally ill, and those labeled as incurable, feeble-minded, and then intellectually disabled, unquote. This separation relied on the idea that the incurably mentally ill were not only incurable, but also dangerous. While the justification for removal from society for those with intellectual and developmental disabilities 
was often centered on infantilizing notions of mental incapacity, dictating and defining a social need to protect the individual. By contrast, the fear of madness often comes down to issues of perceived safety as a result of the inaccurate correlation of states of madness to violence, deviancy, and social unrest. Individuals who are unable to find stable housing and employment as a result of either their symptoms or other aspects of their identity are more likely to experience the pathologization of their reasonable reactions to precarity and the material impacts of their social determinants of health. That is, they are more likely to be labeled mad or deviant for wholly logical responses to their subjection. Sanism labels this psychic resistance to the dominant values and behaviors of social life under capitalism and marks it as unreasonable, founded not on ideas based in logic but in madness. It is not that the individual's state of mind is unreasonable, it is that our society is ill-fit to accommodate the complex needs of mad people under the incentive structures and fiscal restraints of capitalism. In fact, society is actively antagonistic toward mad people, using psychiatric frameworks to dictate how they may live, if they may be free, and, as is often the case in mad people's encounters with state violence at the hands of police or doctors, how they must die. That's a good place to leave it. Yeah. yeah. Adams is a carceral Satanist. You know, he thinks that the problem caused by deinstitutionalization was letting people out into the community who don't belong there. You know, and <laughs> the real problem is that when we closed asylums, we made a lot of promises for services that went unfulfilled, you know, which coincided with things like rising housing costs and accessibility, increased decentralization, privatization of hospital systems, you know, et cetera. So the real problem is that when the era of the total institution ended, it wasn't replaced, nor was the abandonment and neglect that folks actually faced ended. It was simply like dispersed and decentralized. Mm -hmm. You know, ultimately, that in a nutshell is the problem. And once you understand that this is the main thrust of what's actually going on and you start to understand really what Adams is calling for in this announcement and proposal, what he's really saying when he frames this as a moral mandate, this is the embodiment of carceral Satanism. And this is also social murder. It's become a dynamic of extractive abandonment that is a part of how New York state budgets operate. You know, mental health is optimized at the population level. It's oriented around making us better, more productive workers, and everything else obviously does not work out cost-benefit-wise and faces this kind of position of total austerity, you know, and folks experiencing those parts of mental health care, you know, quote unquote, um, you know, their experience is really kind of being stripped for parts. And, you know, that was what the answer was to like, what's next after the total institution was a, a system of making pipelines for prof profit extraction. Um, and this is one that's going to lead us back into the institution. So, you know, the solution is not to return to warehousing people out of sight and out of mind. But, you know, we need to actually like embrace and support people and really think about what about our political economy of health is actually at play here beyond the kind of fear mongering over, you know, different kinds of people being dangerous to society in some capacity, which, you know, is ultimately what's being sold here. So I think this is a good place to leave it. Patrons, thank you for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you're listening to this and you're not a patron, you can support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. 
Patrons, we'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.